0: Welcome to Crop it like it's hot brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and Crop Tech Show and sponsored by the crop nutrition company Yara. Today we're going to be looking at net zero arable farming. NFU plans for the industry to reach net zero by 2040. This is 10 years ahead of the government's legal target for England and five years ahead for Scotland. Now at the moment 87% of farms do not know what their carbon footprint is according to research by Lloyds Bank. Today I'll be speaking to a number of experts about why arable farmers should start that move towards net zero before it becomes policy and we'll also be hearing what practical steps you as a farmer can take to do this. Just a reminder, you can get one CPD point for this podcast by emailing your BASIS registration number along with the podcast title to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So first on today's programme, we've got James Standen, who is farms director for Newcastle University Farms. He also farms in partnership with his wife in North Yorkshire, growing combinable crops and running a sheep flock. And as well as this, he's on the NFU Crops Board and their Net Zero Steering Group. Sounds like you're very busy, James. I
1: am. I am. Um, sometimes <laughs> I wonder if I wear too many hats, but
0: it's, it keeps me busy.
2: I enjoy it. <laughs>
0: So, in January last year, Manette Batters outlined plans for UK agriculture to go net zero by 2040. Now, we've got 20 years to get there, which sounds like quite a long time. But is this ambition something that farmers really need to start thinking about getting involved with now?
1: Absolutely, yes. I think that we know that the government announced shortly after um, that they wanted to be net zero by 2050 and put that into uh, law or voted in the House of Commons. So at some point it's going to become a legal requirement Uh, and and we certainly shouldn't be leaving things to the last minute to sort our businesses out. So I think getting ahead of the game as the NFU uh, tried to do with the 2040 target is a good thing. I think some of the things that farmers would need to do to achieve net zero in in terms of productivity will only bring benefits to their business and that seems like a win-win it's you know why would you not do something that enhances your business or makes it more profitable uh, so i think yes it's time to get on board i think the other reason it's better to be on board early is uh, i think carbon sequestration at zero targets is going to be a tradable item and if you're in the game early, you're in a better chance of um, making, you know, be, being there at the start of the uh, payment or, or process or whatever sort of market develops. And I, I see that as a revenue stream for farms. So I think getting in there early is a good thing for
0: us as an industry. And we often hear that the phrase that agriculture is part of the solution in all of this. But have the NFU identified any particular challenges or barriers to adoption for UK farmers?
1: Oh, I think the biggest barrier is the is the main one on farms is just that the barrier of change, um, and you know why why should I be doing something different? Why should I be doing it? Uh, so I think that that's one of the biggest barriers. I think in some of the solutions that have been identified by the NFU and others, there are some te- technological challenges in that you know we don't quite know what is going to come on board that helps us move to that position so in terms of challenges you know we can move so far in the next you know short term the next three to five years to get all the way to net zero there is some you know there's some barriers we've got to get over the the change got Mm -hmm. to change but also the technological issues that that not everything has been discovered yet to help us get to that target
0: and what about opportunities because it sounds like there's not only great opportunity obviously to improve what we're doing with the environment and the world but there could also be huge amounts of opportunity to monetize from this as well
1: yeah i think that's that's quite an interesting one in in my mind i have to say it's not it's not anything that's shared by others i think the market's going to fall into three three categories i think that there will be a level of carbon sequestration within Elms, potentially, as a baseline
3: that farmers can um, gain money for, and then I suspect there will be,
1: Then I think the remainder carbon, and this might be from business, it might be government, it might be tradable markets, I think there will be a payment for carbon storage, and that might be in the form of planting trees, or managing peatlands or those high organic matter soils in a certain way or there might be annual payments for changing an activity you're doing now which might be a high carbon use into an activity in the future that will be a, a a lower carbon use and i think that will attract you know that that will attract payments because you're you're you know you're using less carbon or you're storing carbon whether that comes in the payment of annual payments or or um capital grants to help you get there i i don't know yet but in my mind that's the way the market um probably you know i think that's the way the market will probably develop uh but so opportunity wise i, I think there's a good opportunity for farmers you know we, we farm a lot of the land i think with the carbon we sequester at the moment uh you know i think there's a good there's a good story to tell uh and a good opportunity there to um to get in at the start and, um, and, and try and look for some of these additional revenue streams.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that's something we're going to hear quite a lot more about later. But what are um, the NFU doing in terms of kind of helping the industry with this move towards net zero?
1: So the NFU have put, uh, put a, as I say, the steering group together and done a lot of work on uh, mapping opportunities in terms of the research going on. They've come up with a vision and approach on where the greenhouse gas or the carbon emissions might be reduced to net zero, and some of that around productivity, some of that around storage, some of that around the sort of bioenergy crops. They're doing a lot of mapping in that area. Uh, The next stage of that development is looking at benchmarking and producing some audits on farm. Um, the next stage of that, I think, will be around looking at our carbon efficiency compared to others in the world. So, they're doing a lot of mapping. They're doing a lot of um, um, strategy at the moment, and there are things that are coming forward that we can start to implement on the farm out of that. Uh, and you're hearing a lot of people talk about you know, the, the direct drilling, min till, carbon storage. You're seeing trees being, you know, trees being talked about. Um, and, you know, so There's a lot of other people coming and it's probably um, one of the big challenges the NFU have got at the moment is sort of staying ahead of the game and um, looking at things that, that farmers can implement easily, practically and profitably on their farms.
0: Yeah, and we're going to hear a bit more about some of those things later on in the podcast. Thank you very much, James.
1: Okay, no problem. Thank you, Alice.
0: And now continuing that conversation on carbon trading opportunities in a bit more detail, we've got independent soil-based farming consultant Neil Fuller here. Hi Alice. Hi Neil, how are you doing?
2: Very well, thank you. How
0: are you? I'm good, thank you. So we've just heard from James about some of the potential opportunities for net zero, but for some arable farmers the prospect might seem quite daunting uh, just another thing that they have to comply with so I wondered if I could get your thoughts on kind of whether you think this is something to be embraced
2: absolutely I think one of the problems we've got with net zero at this point in time it's effectively a government driven agenda which is now in law which I think is brilliant it's going to require some serious thought and some real change in behaviour and we in agriculture would look at that perhaps and think maybe with a little bit of suspicion, this is just another form filling checkbox, accounting type procedure that we've got to go through which will tighten uh, the uh, legislation it will tighten the requirements on documentation and certification and it looks like it's quite an appreciable Additional burden and it needn't be. There are a couple of good bits, a couple of uh, things that perhaps we need to take consideration of. The good bits are that essentially everybody now has this net zero drive agenda uh, Mm. requirement. We in agriculture have some fantastic opportunities to be able to deliver net zero net zero once we understand where we are and what we're doing actually ripples from the farm gate right the way through the supply chain to the consumer and we in agriculture are the foundation of that my firm belief is with relatively straightforward very practical changes to management we can actually get to net zero without too much trouble
0: so we hear a lot about things like carbon trading. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that going? Uh, the interesting thing with with the carbon trading side of things, essentially, if you're running an industry, if you're running a
2: family that's got a carbon footprint, and let's face it, we all are, yeah if we, if we want to get to net zero, the opportunity is that we reduce as much as possible wherever sensible the carbon generating bits of our lifestyle or our industrial process but whatever we do to reduce we're going to come down to a level of carbon that we simply can't compress any further and that bit of carbon once we've done everything possible practical economic to reduce our carbon load that little bit of uncompressible carbon we can then look to offset by effectively buying carbon carbon credits and what we're looking at then is saying okay if you know the scale of your problem how many carbon credits do you need to bring that to a net zero carbon well there are opportunities in agriculture for us to be growing carbon credits to trade mm-hmm. and there are opportunities within industry to look to buy those carbon credits to
3: offset their carbon liability i'm going to take the classic it's a little bit of a misdirection
2: but if you look at the classic issue with regard to aviation aviation has a carbon footprint in the uk of about 30 million
3: tons of co2 equivalent the industry is going to spend billions on new airframes, new engines, synthetic fuels.
2: They're going to get more and more efficient. They're going to deliver people around the world and goods around the world at lower and lower and lower carbon embedded in their particular service. But they're going to come to a point where they can't lower it anymore. So they could come to agriculture and say, actually, you know, we've brought our carbon footprint down by 60%. We're looking to buy some genuine carbon to offset what we're doing. So we can claim we're carbon neutral. They're then in a position to purchase carbon per tonne to offset their activities. So the carbon trading essentially is allowing industry or individuals to bring their activities to a net zero by paying somebody to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground. Now, if we put the carbon that's in the atmosphere causing us problems back into the soil, where it should be, we can actually see farm productivity improve as a result. So there are genuine operational efficiencies and gains to be had by farming in a carbon-centric manner. And then we look at the extra carbon that we brought in and we can go back to our aviation partners and say this is what we could do for you to safeguard and offset your carbon liability for the duration of your enterprise and and essentially the bit that we need to get involved with, I think at this point in time is understanding the scale of the situation and understanding what we can quickly, practically do about it and then look to the future with regard to what this carbon might be worth because one of the mechanisms that carbon trading will deliver is a speed or a regulation of of the speed at which industries adopt carbon neutral Technologies and deliver on their net zero. So, for example, if there were no willingness for an industry to become carbon light and it wants to stay at carbon heavy, the price point for carbon credits potentially can increase. Government can turn around and say, We'll set a standard, we'll have a value in the marketplace, and that value will increase as if. Effectively, industry does or doesn't change its behavior as consumers do or don't change their behavior. So carbon pricing is going to be an incentive to move into a lower carbon future. And the slower we are to do that, the more, in all likelihood, the carbon price will go up. And as you look to that, agriculture then gets in an even stronger position because we are capable of sequestering huge amounts of carbon Mm -hmm. and delivering that to a marketplace as tradable carbon credit.
0: And then what about within the supply chain? Because I know when we spoke before you mentioned how this could be passed down the supply chain, say if a loaf of bread is produced or a packet of crisps.
2: Absolutely. I I think supply chain integration is a real winner, particularly when you look at how involved farming is in delivering not just food security, but but proper quality food that actually underpins human health and well-being. And my bit to the carbon story, as it tracks through the supply chain, essentially, if if we looked at uh, wheat, as an example, being turned into bread we could look at the carbon embedded in wheat production and we might find, for example, that there are five tonnes of carbon embedded in a hectare of milling wheat. That carbon mostly is a result of things like cultivation, fuel use, the big one is nitrogen fertilizer, a little bit on uh, ag cam crop protection, uh, and then the energy side of things with regard to doing it to dry the crop, how far are going to transport it? But the carbon that's generated in production of that wheat actually transfers itself through the entire supply chain. So if you look at a loaf of bread, as it sits at point of sale on a supermarket shelf, probably a little bit more than half the carbon embedded in that loaf of bread is a result of what we did at farm level to grow the wheat. So almost immediately, you can start to see some gains. If we produced a net zero carbon wheat at farm level,
3: mm-hmm. it would mean that we could produce a loaf of bread at 50% carbon. So think of it as a carbon
2: light loaf of bread. That's that's our first opportunity, and and looking to how we can monetize that, can we get premiums on uh, milling wheat, for example, because the net zero carbon agenda doesn't just sit on our shoulders, it sits on everybody's shoulders within the supply chain, so the people that are producing the bread as it sits on the supermarket shelf, the people that are running the supermarket, they're all generating a carbon liability that essentially they've got to bring down to zero so farming could turn around and say from the loaf of bread perspective we could deliver a 50 percent reduction in loaf of bread carbon relatively quickly we could also generate a little bit more carbon and then offset the rest of the carbon that's in that loaf of bread so let's say half the carbon is related to farming we'll deal with that at farm level Let's sequester a bit of carbon again at farm level and offset the rest of the carbon that's embedded in that loaf of bread to deliver a net zero loaf of bread. If we cost that at today's carbon trading prices, it would probably add a penny to the price of a loaf of its supermarket shelf. If we track that penny back down the supply chain to the farmer that could relate at a penny a loaf to 200 pounds a hectare
0: yeah and i don't think many consumers would be averse to paying one p more for a loaf of bread they wouldn't even notice
2: Well, the, the offer really from our point of view you know, let's suppose that penny a loaf were translated as uh, an increase in cost at uh, point of sale It would change, probably, the average person's spend on bread by about 60p per person per annum. The threat is that, as everybody in the supply chain has got to be net zero, if we go back off-farm and look at our inputs, if we look at our fertilisers, our fungicides, our tractors, our fuel, everybody that supplies us needs to be net zero. So there's a challenge... Downstream. Because we're going to be faced with, for example, uh, low carbon or zero carbon fertilizer, let's say. And there'll be a price ticket on that. Probably by somewhere between twenty and eighty pounds per ton of fertilizer. And that depends on where it comes from, how it's made, and all the background bits and pieces around its its technical performance. The point about the nitrogen is it's probably 80% of the carbon footprint of our arable crops and significant gains have been made by one or two companies that have invested enormous amounts of money in their manufacturing processes and are now delivering a certificated product at farm level that has got some of the lowest carbon per kilo of nitrogen embedded in it. Now, these fertilizers we need to be buying at farm level and we need to be selecting our fertilizers not based on price but based on performance performance in the field and performance environmentally problem we've got in agriculture the benefit also is that unlike any other industry in the main the carbon that we bring in in terms of our fertilizers and our fungicides Deliver yield benefits And those yield benefits Effectively dilute our carbon Per tonne or per calorie So our carbon Per hectare May go up But if the carbon per hectare Delivers more yield Our carbon per tonne May go down And it's the per tonne bit Or the per calorie bit Mm. That will track through the supply chain. They're not really interested in what we're doing per hectare. They're interested in what we're doing with regard to carbon per ton as it
0: translates from farm to food. I feel like we could talk about this all day. Final question. If a farmer was listening to this and feeling kind of inspired and that they wanted to at least start the journey towards net zero, carbon neutral crops, what would they need to do?
2: Okay, so the, the first step would very definitely is some sort of carbon audit. So you get an idea for how you're performing. And for me, keep it really simple. Look at a specific crop or a specific livestock enterprise. Essentially, ring fence a field, look at all the inputs that go into it, fertilizers, fungicides, growth regulators, crop protection, steel and diesel, all your operations. Look at what comes off that hectare, where grass, meat, milk, wheat, barley, oil rape, potatoes, whatever it is, and look at then a little bit with regard to the storage requirements or transport requirements within the farming fraction. So you ring-fence it within the farm operation, you ring-fence it within a field, and you ring-fence it to a particular crop or livestock enterprise, and get some numbers for that. That's step one. Step two benchmark those numbers have a look at what everybody else is doing there are people out there that are telling you what they can do in terms of their carbon footprint and look at how you match up on the scale of things the next bit would be look at all the products and the operations within your system to see where the big bits of carbon lie so for example From an arable point of view, most likely, the big bit is going to be on nitrogen fertiliser. Yeah. What are we using? Simple things, can we fit into rotation, that would begin to build a carbon catching capability? So for example, is there an opportunity to go into a spring cereal and between harvesting one crop and establishing the spring cereal, could we pop in a really aggressive, deep-rooting, fast-growing cover crop and look at the cost, look at the benefit to that, and, and look at the difficulties of managing that, what would cause us problems, how would we work in a glyphosate-free environment, what tools do we need to control canopy, do we graze it with livestock, what additional income would that bring, et cetera, et cetera. What benefits does that bring in terms of soil structure, timing of establishing next crop, nutrient loading, black grass control, all the bits and pieces that could have significant long-term gain over the course of a rotation. And that's before you make the decision to go from solid fertiliser to liquid fertiliser or put the plough back in the shed and buy a no-till direct drill, before you get into those kinds of um, discussions. There are practical, relatively low cost, very robust techniques that perhaps we could get involved with. You then look at the changes that could unfold if you then started to have a slightly bolder conversation with your supply chain. So if you are growing something for a brand, have a conversation about this net zero agenda where's the threat? Where's the liability? Where's the opportunity within that? And then last, but by no means least, let's look at soil testing for soil carbon balance. Let's put some numbers out there that actually say this is where we are.
3: And as we move into our carbon future,
2: And then we can monitor the changes using satellite imagery,
3: carbon accounting procedures, etc., that will effectively track
2: soil carbon change. So at the end of five years, we can say, well, the the carbon audit suggests, because we put in two cover crops over the course of five years, and we incorporated straw, and we got anti-direct drilling, soil carbon balance should have gone up by 10 tonnes of CO2 equivalent per hectare per annum, soil test shows us that we're not too far adrift from that then those two go hand in glove we've got a level of validation monitoring and measurement that say actually you know we've done a good thing and that will be really important if we take the next step and that is to trade carbon and and then the last thing farmer to farmer dialogue
0: Mm. let's
2: get let's get talking
0: I feel like I just have so many more questions, but I think we're gonna have to leave it there I'm afraid. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Alice. Hi, I'm Natalie Wood, you're country arable agronomist, and I'm here to talk about ammonia emissions. Now ammonia is a big problem in the UK, with eighty-eight per cent of emissions coming from agriculture. Of that, twenty-three percent are coming from fertilizers. So what can you do to reduce those emissions? Nitrate fertilisers have less than 3% ammonia emissions, therefore switching from urea to AN reduces ammonia emissions by 10 times. If using urea treated with an inhibitor, then the emissions from that are still double those from nitrates. Therefore, if you want to have some of the lowest ammonia emissions, use Yarabella Axan. For more information, please visit yara.co.uk. we've got daniel kindred he's head of agronomics at adas and he's going to tell us about the importance of productivity and why aiming for high yields that we often see with the yen could be part of the solution to achieving net zero daniel so neil said a fair bit about product choice and the importance of maintaining productivity and mark tucker is going to tell us a bit more about product choice for nitrogen in a minute you mean product choice, yeah. yeah but if Nitrogen is one of the biggest contributors in crop production. I guess some people might just think the answer is don't use as much, but that can actually have a much worse effect on a crop's carbon emissions. Is that right?
3: So nitrogen fertilisers are responsible for the, the use of nitrogen fertiliser in both from manufacturing um, of, of the fertiliser itself and from the emissions that are related from soil um, nitrous oxide um, losses that come with um, the largest part of the greenhouse gas intensities of crops, so about 50% or more of the total total carbon cost of a, of a tonne of wheat. Um, but obviously, the more nitrogen you apply, the more um, yield you achieve, up to a limit. And so that 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 increase in yield actually dilutes the um, the, the the impacts of of all the other emissions. So the emissions are they coming from um, uh cultivations or um other fertilizers at chems but that doesn't actually when we look at these calculations it actually doesn't have that bigger an effect so if you were just to say just on a straightforward basis i want to i want to achieve the lowest carbon footprint i can Mm -hmm. you would actually you would radically reduce the amount of nitrogen you apply so you're down at maybe 50 kilos a hectare rather than uh, 200 kilos we are at the moment with wheat but that only tells part of the story <clears throat> because if you, if you then say, well, actually, I'm, I've done that, but I'm actually producing two or three tons a hectare less grain than I otherwise would, then that two or three tons um, of grain has to be produced, or one way or another, has to, produce, has to be produced somewhere else. And if it's produced somewhere else where um, that's associated with changing the land use, so um, from the resulting, resulting from having converted grassland or resulting um, forest, then the emissions from that land use change, so losing the carbon from from that uh, the that, the soil and the the vegetation stock in, in that previous land, that, that that loss of carbon is absolutely huge. So um, when I do the calculations on this, then we find that actually um, it's, it it can be the case that actually. Um, margin rates should actually be higher than they are at the moment to get that marginal bit of extra production to reduce that pressure on land use change elsewhere in the world.
0: Okay that's quite interesting then. And the Yield Enhancement Network or YEN is all about improving crop yields but it's come under a bit of scrutiny um, from certain people in the industry due to some of the systems being quite high input. But you've started looking at Greenhouse gas intensities for some of these crops, so I'm quite intrigued to hear what you found there.
3: So yeah, so lots of people have the impression that the yen is really about high inputs and you know going for going for yields and going going hell out with all the, with all, going all out with all inputs. Um, that's not really not what it's about at all. What we're really about is trying to understand what the constraints are to to yield um, and how we can. Um, how are we going to overcome them? And recognising the real resources that crops have are light and water. So all the all the inputs that we apply are really just about to capture more of that light and water. Fundamentally, what's driving yields when we look at the end data is not the, the relationships with input use are actually pretty weak. You know, people people are achieving achieving high yields because of the the attention to detail, generally speaking, that's been what their soils are providing and getting um, those crops, um, designing the system that's producing a crop that captures and utilizes the available light and the available water. So I, I strongly disagree with this notion there is out there that high yields are necessarily kind of bad and evil. It's kind of that very often they, it's, it's not really a about the bought inputs, it's about it's about the management, and it, you know, we we can achieve um, people are achieving very high yields without using very high inputs. When we look at the greenhouse gas calculations from from the from the, from the um, which I've done recently, we are seeing this association with yields. So actually, the the it's actually the, the the lower performing crops tend to be because they because the variation in the inputs actually isn't all that great. So when you calculate it on a per tonne basis, then actually the, the, the worst GHG intensities come from those um, lowest yielding crops. The best, the lowest carbon footprints come from the highest yielding crops. There's all, there, is, there is an effect there in, in the fertilizer that actually that, you know, that there is a, where, where fertilizer use is higher, the nitrogen fertilizer use is higher, the, um, the intensities are are higher, so there's definitely kind of um, things that we can do in terms of using nitrogen more efficiently and you know, trying to achieve those high yields without achieving without applying a, a lot of fertilizer. But there's also a lot of variation you know, from other factors. So the, the variation in the greenhouse gas um, intensities from the year that was calculated vary by more than twofold.
0: Okay. and it isn't
3: all just related to yield and fertilizer there are impacts of other non 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 natural fertilizers and um the amount of diesel used in, in cultivations etc
0: and from those greenhouse gas intensity results did you see much difference between tillage systems because i guess this is often thought of as an obvious way to reduce carbon and actually any difference in productivity between systems either
3: um so yeah so when we've analyzed um the the Yen data looking for effects of cultivation system, then we found that there isn't a significant difference um, in the Yen between um, direct drilling or plow based cultivation or, or, or till systems. Um, and fundamentally, there isn't a reason why um, you no-till know, or conservation agricultural practices should be any lower yielding than um, any other um establishment method okay but but obviously Sorry. they do have a lot you know the, the the emissions related to diesel use are you know can be dramatically lower on in those systems than, than they are on a, on a conventional
0: system what about um things like crop choice i know it's a bit of a controversial topic but we're seeing this kind of move towards flexitarianism and people eating less meat to try and reduce their carbon footprint. But there must be opportunities for arable farmers there to produce more UK plant-based proteins.
3: Absolutely. So I think that um, the, and especially with, you know, the, the, the difficulties we have in growing lawsuit rape and um, other break hops now, then having a, an increasing market for pulses um, is a really great opportunity going forward. Given it's not just the kind of another another opportunity for those crops, but the, the rotational impact, the rotational benefits that um, pulses give us um, through the nitrogen fixation. So um, whilst there's still some cost for that in terms of soil nitrous nitro, nitro oxide emissions, you don't from a greenhouse gas perspective get those emissions, get those, that nitrogen totally for free, um, you are reducing, you are getting that without, the, without manufacturing emissions. And there is this legacy of that nitrogen then being available to, to the next crop, um, to the next crop in the rotation. Um, again, so, you know, I think there's, a, there's a real opportunity there for, you know, peas, beans, but potentially also, you know, chickpeas, lentils, soy, um, or other crops as well in the future um, that, 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 that um, will help and part of getting, getting us to a, a more sustainable and more profitable um, arable system
0: Yeah and it seems like there's a fair amount of investment at the moment looking into these alternative crops some of which you just mentioned um, so that might be something we have to look at again soon on the podcast Thanks very much for your help Daniel
3: Brilliant thanks Thanks Alice
0: Now, continuing with the topic of fertilisers, Yara's Mark Tucker is going to tell us more about product choice, policy and what Yara are doing to reduce nitrogen emissions. Hi, Mark. Hi
2: there.
0: So, we heard from Neil earlier, who said a majority of an arable crop's carbon footprint comes from fertiliser, so this seems like quite a good place to start for an arable farmer that wants to kind of move towards net zero. Um, He mentioned that product choice is very important so what exactly can growers do here
4: so when it comes to product choice then yeah there's there's the focus on the origin of that fertilizer i think is the first um one to consider so across the world fertilizer production is happening and whether it's in a western european fertilizer plant or a um a coal-based in China then they come with different footprints and the coal based um, production facility will have three times the carbon footprint of uh, a Western European more natural gas based production facility.
0: Okay, that's pretty substantially higher there.
4: Yeah, yeah so um, yeah, a real difference just purely from the supply um, side and I think the, the term I would say the farmer needs to look for um, if he's buying ammonium nitrate would be abated fertiliser so abated nitrogen fertiliser means that it's coming from a plant that has taken out 90 percent of its n2o emission during that production so yeah for farmers then look for the term abated when it comes to purchasing uh, the nitrogen fertiliser urea is it doesn't have abatement attached to it because that um, doesn't go through the same process during manufacture the challenge with urea is that it does come with carbon in its chemical makeup so there's always going to be an emission of co2 um, following applications of urea onto the uh, soils
0: and there's quite a lot of government focus around um, urea fertilizers at the moment isn't there
4: yes there's the, the challenges of um on the one hand we're really wanting net zero from a carbon footprint but also what we can't dismiss is the um, ammonia footprint of fertilisers as well. And urea comes with a high ammonia footprint. So um, it's like anything; these uh, yeah, there's different um, solutions
0: to the various problems. So it depends what the real problem you're trying to solve is, um, as to what direction you would take with your fertiliser choice. And when it comes to nitrogen applications, we're all very familiar with the three R's so, right product, right time, and right place. In terms of application, what can growers be doing here?
4: Yeah, you know, I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's, once we've sort of taken out some of that carbon footprint associated with a the product, then the focus goes on to utilising it out in the field. And there we know that end to emissions. A higher following the application when we've got soils that are um, saturated so very few water uh, or, or air filled spaces so we've got a high water filled um, pore space so in those scenarios then the dominant process in the soil is then denitrification which is what we don't want, we want mineralisation to happen so out in the field when you're thinking about that application then do bear in mind the conditions that that soils in so we're really looking to put it onto a soil which is mineralizing because um, we know at that point the crop is likely to be growing and starting its growth um, so we're then trying to meet supply of that nitrogen with demand of that crop so focusing on the crop when it needs the nitrogen as well as when that soil is in the best state avoid the end to emissions that can come off from a uh, denitrifying soil
0: okay and what about the actual needs of the crop
4: Yeah, I think a a good assessment of the needs in terms of rate of application Um, again it's it's worth spending some time just carefully planning that one thing I would really caution against um, is focusing on the final yield Um, towards our application rate um, because we know that there's a poor correlation there between final yield and the N N requirement in any one year. So if we're not careful, we can target high yields which will drive to a high N application rate. Um, And if we don't achieve that yield, then we've got a, a surplus in the system which we need to deal with. So I think, yeah, careful planning. Um, but think about for the source supply, think about the crop need. If you do, you know, use yields, then use realistic ones, not sort of what you know we might hope for, but often don't achieve. So be very realistic with the sums that you do in terms of the original planning. Um, the most important thing then is to keep sort of dynamic with the fertilizer program through the season, then so that you adjust. And be appropriate according to what the year is and the season is throwing at you uh, by way of yeah, growing conditions and, and crop performance and how that yield might be uh, or the yield potential might be changing with the um, environment that it's sort of confronted with.
0: Yeah, okay. And this move towards net zero will be about the whole supply chain. And I know Yara have done quite a lot already to combat their carbon footprint and things um but obviously you're under the same pressures that growers are under to go net zero so what what have you got planned coming on down the line
4: yeah i think it's it's a good point where you know we're all under pressure and yara have a a goal of being um, carbon neutral by 2050 um, we have a more immediate goal of a 10% reduction uh, per ton by 2025 And so that really does focus the mind in terms of how you're going to get there. Well, there's energy efficiency in plants, uh, one area that investment goes into, which improves the position. Um, And then there's um, other much larger investments, which are now underway, um, looking at um, green fertiliser by way of ammonia is the, the sort of principal product that we want to produce, which then can be used in fertilizer manufacture and what we're looking at there is investment in green ammonia production either using solar power, um, wind power or water power in terms of hydroelectric. So there's a number of projects underway now which are looking to produce green ammonia and that will have a real significant um, effect on the carbon footprint as, as we go forward over the coming sort of
0: years and decades. Okay, and then in terms of focusing the growers' mind, it could be the case that policy comes in that kind of forces growers into making some quite stark changes. Are there any lessons we could learn from other countries in terms of fertiliser policy?
4: I mean, there's various examples, and I guess um, European partners um, have sort of shown the way there in terms of some of the moves that have been made. And Denmark, notably, as a country, has always had a very um, sort of real focus on how much um, nitrogen the farmer can use, the arable farmer and the grassland farmer. So um, really making the farmer then focus on the efficiency of use of that nitrogen. I think the lesson that we can learn from, from Denmark
3: is that it can certainly have a knock in terms of productivity
4: and profitability of the farm if you go to a very um, low rate of application. So that does tend to then really have a restriction on um, both productivity profitability of the farm. So there's a lesson to be learned there in that uh, just choosing that rate needs to be care- carefully thought through. But I think the other lesson that we see from Denmark is the way they've now linked their policy with the use of technology and that um, i think is a, a neat way of doing it where you yes there might be restrictions on how much nitrogen is allowed but really do allow the farmer to have the flexibility when it comes to the timing the application rates at any given time but then the use of technology out there to help guide The
0: actual recommendation that's um, used in the season. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your help.
4: No worries, thank you very much.
0: And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for for today, but I hope you're feeling inspired by our speakers, excited for the future, and ready to take on the net zero challenge.